hear this story and you'll also be gaining knowledge when you listen to it on how to do these things. I realized that like my concern was really just what people were going to think of my decision and oh my god she's crazy what is she doing she's not you know she's supposed to be pursuing a career this is when she's supposed to be finding a job and I that doesn't appeal to me that never appealed to me. Play a major role in spreading the love and the joy and uh, reducing our imprint you know for for future generations and for all that we share this planet with. I was just embarrassed. I felt like I couldn't do it, like I'd already failed. I had no idea what I was doing. What did I get myself into? What was I thinking? Our history of humanity really revolves around great people. And that's, that's all we know about. And why is that? It's because the insignificant people weren't important enough that somebody would take the time to document their life. Hello everyone, my name is Kaylin Otto and you are listening to The Unruly Podcast. Welcome back. I feel like it's been a second and there is a good reason for that. I just got back about a week ago from a three-week expedition where I first went to LA to speak on a panel about Gen Z travel, solo female travel, and how people use dating apps while traveling for Match Group, which was really awesome. I still get really nervous speaking, but the more I do it, the more comfortable I get, and the more I get excited to be able to keep on speaking. Like, you know, speaking is new for me. In a calm, concentrated way, I'm used to doing disruptions and protests and things like that, which feels really easy, but this type of speaking has been challenging for me. So that was a good challenge. And after that good challenge, I met my friend Anne, which if you're a longtime listener of the podcast, you know who she is. She's my friend from Denmark, one of my best friends, actually, that I met while I was an exchange student in South America for a year. Anne and I do have an episode together. I think it's called like scooping elephant poop, the best week of our lives, something like that. I'll put the link in the show notes. And we recorded that episode together after we had spent about a month in Thailand and we volunteered at Elephant Nature Park. So be sure to check that out. But I met Anne in London. And to be honest, I the UK hasn't really been on my list. And so I really didn't research it. I had no idea what to expect. I had just heard that London has a lot of vegan food and I was excited about that. But other than that, I didn't know what I was doing. And before we left, I booked us a rental car. I booked us a few days in London to begin. And I booked my flight there and home. And that was literally all of the planning that we did. I mean, truly, that was all the planning that we did. So I met her in London. We ate our way through London. We went to all these incredible places. Check out my Instagram. I'm sharing lots of videos from what we did in London and like best vegan restaurants, all those sorts of things. And then we drove around in this rental car and we slept in the rental car, which was actually really surprisingly comfortable. And we made our way through England and then Wales. And we went, okay, when I tell you this was an amazing trip, I am not joking with you at all. We went to castles and national forests and we climbed huge trees and we went surfing on the coast of Wales in this gorgeous spot where 
rainbows would literally appear over the town and we went to drag shows and we hit up awesome cities and we went to climbing gyms and we just we did so much it was literally one of the best trips that I've ever been on and probably the trip that I did you know one of the few trips where I did the least amount of planning so after that trip on my way back on the plane I was like that was really amazing I want to help other people relive our experience because I want to relive that experience so I created a 20 page travel guide a PDF an ebook that you can download and it teaches you how to get to Europe on a budget how to save money when booking flights how to use points when booking flights uh, it teaches you how to travel once you're actually there on a budget what to do for food where to get the cheapest rental car but that has real still has really good insurance because driving on the other side of the road with the steering wheel on the other side of the car with all these different traffic signs is no joke so there's a whole section on driving uh it shows you where to park it takes you day by day by day what to do there's a whole itinerary for each day and there's also spaces in there for rest there's also spaces in there for free time but there's all these epic locations that we went to and we weren't rushing through our trip but we did a lot in a little bit of time so this guide will take you through all these amazing destinations castles forests beaches cities in just a couple of weeks so please go to the link in the show notes check out that guide i put a lot of hard work and love into it and i really want someone to be able to experience the magic that we did so even if you are not going to the uk anytime soon if you know someone who's going you know a friend that's planning a trip send this to them it's like they have a travel guide you know a travel like an actual human travel guide with them showing them all these incredible places except they can literally do whatever they want and don't actually have to have me with them the whole time <laughs> so please check that out i am really excited to have that out in the world and if you're going to be in Asheville on the 16th i will be at vegan fest and i will also have more information about this guide and The Art of Unruly Travel on a Budget, my written book there for you to buy in person. So I hope to see you there. Now, if you have listened to the past few episodes, you're probably catching on. The blog is moving into this section on veganism. And we are examining, discussing, dissecting the ways in which we interact with other non-human animals that we share this world with. And we're looking at that under a lens of how we eat, uh, how we use them for transportation, how we use them for work, how we use them for entertainment, for fashion, all of these different things. I've already had on a couple guests that are talking about this in a really important and intersectional way. And we're going to continue that conversation. I have some fabulous guests coming up for you, including our guest today. So today our guest is Ren Hurst, which you're going to get to hear from. And I came into this episode, you know, this is about horses. We're talking about horses because I, from the time I was born, you know, there's pictures of me sitting on the backs of horses. My grandparents owned a racehorse farm and, you know, I'd spend the summers there sometimes. And so I was always around horses. We always had horses at our house too. So since the time I was born to... The time I was in high school, I was riding horses, showing horses. And then even when I went vegan, I 
was still riding horses while I was in South America traveling, and deep down, I knew the harm that I was doing, and I knew that controlling these magnificent animals was coming from this this hurt, twisted place inside of me, right, when you want that power over someone else, but I wasn't ready to change my relationship with horses in such a dramatic way yet, and over the years, you know, I learned a lot about the harm that we cause to horses when we ride them, but Ren is going to go into this holistic view of it that I was not expecting, but I so appreciate, and she talks about our relationship not only with horses, but with dogs with other animals and with ourselves, which she goes so deep into it. And I learned so much from that, from that uh, interview with her that I'm still processing. And so I know that you are going to learn a lot too. But if you're like Kaylin, whoa. All right. I heard this episode. I get it. Oh my goodness. Life has changed. I want to learn more, but I need the basics of how riding horses actually harms them, you know, how the bit harms them, how carrying a human on their back harms them, how no matter what type of saddle you use, riding them can be harmful. Okay, I hear you, I totally hear you, because that is where I started, and I'm going to put links in the show notes so that you can learn some more about how riding horses physically harms them, and uh, it's a great, you know, it's great to know those basic facts for yourself, because when you're traveling or in your everyday life, you're going to come into conversations with people, you're going to be faced with decisions, do I want to use an animal to do something for me, like transport me somewhere or be entertainment for me things like that so I think it's really important to talk about that and I will leave you some resources that have really helped me over the years now we have such a fitting sponsor for our episode today and you've heard me talk about them before the Peace Advocacy Network is a nonprofit, and they're an organization with two main programs, a 30-day vegan pledge program and a 10-week vegan activist academy. These programs are free, and they align with PAN's social justice mission for accessibility. If you want to learn more about PAN, listen to the last episode I did. I did a longer segment about them in the beginning where I really went into it. And we have my friend Mo on the podcast a couple episodes ago where he talks all about PAN. But this year, Pan is holding its first Move for Peace fundraiser. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes that you can, so that you can learn more about it and you can get people involved who might be excited about it. So I really encourage you to check that out. All right, there is going to be a really uh, in-depth, powerful discussion happening today. So I hope you're ready for it. here we go. Thank you so much for coming on the Unruly podcast. I'm so excited to pick your brain about all things horses, and I know a lot of other subjects are going to come up as well. Uh, But can you just give us a small or large introduction into who you are? Yeah, thanks, Kaylin. Thanks for the opportunity and for having me. Um, My name is Ren Hurst. I spent almost 20 years as a professional in the horse industry in all different manners, but specifically and especially in the areas of hoof care, holistic management, and horse training. And, you know, I made a really comfortable, solid, secure living doing that. There wasn't a lot of reason for me to 
look at why there might be problems with what I was doing. There wasn't a lot of reason for me to change. I had a pretty fulfilling uh, life on the surface that kept me pretty secure and comfortable. But um, I've always had a just insatiable hunger for truth and for understanding things. And so as I was, you know, coming up the ranks as a horse trainer and creating a name for myself and expanding my career, I was constantly diving in to the most cutting edge practices that were coming to the forefront in terms of behavior modification, how to manage horses, how to heal horses, et cetera, et cetera. And that eventually led me to a really esoteric school called Netzer Occult, which required us to, for one, we had to give up writing in order to become a student of the school, not because mm. they considered writing wrong or bad, but because writing harms the horse physically in lots of ways that people don't understand. And we had to give the horses that we were schooling the opportunity to heal their bodies while we were mm. learning the different uh, modalities of the school. And in allowing their bodies to heal, we were expanding their agency and capacity to grow intellectually and to build the relationship because the protocols of the school do not allow any manipulation whatsoever mm. um, in order to relate to the horses. So it's not training on any level. We were it's like treating the horse as either like a child, a pupil, a student, and educating them and asking them to move in ways that were very natural for them for their development, mm. which then in turn expanded our own development. So all of it was very esoteric to me. None of it would have been super interesting if I hadn't seen what the other students and the leader of the school could do with their horses, which was something I had never seen in the United States before. Um, what was originally drawing about the school is that as a trainer and a rider, it, it was always my priority to ride and train with the least amount of control or equipment possible. So I was often training horses with no, no physical equipment on them at all. I was riding horses free without a bridle, without anything on them as much and as often as I could. And I was seeing that demonstrated in the school while riding was still a part of the school. Um, in ways that just I couldn't wrap my head around. And so I rescued this untrained young stallion to be my school horse, and I started applying the philosophies of the school to him. And it completely shattered my reality. It shattered my entire paradigm around what horses were, what we were doing to animals in captive dependency, and what we were thwarting as far as their capacity and ability to learn in our training of them and in our controlling of them. But where the school was really limited was in that it didn't have any sort of basis or understanding or foundation of trauma or understanding trauma mm -hmm. or psychology or energetics or things that I had been interested in separate from the school that were all coming together in a way that I could not have foreseen at the time. And relating to this animal in this way was actually teaching me about trauma and about how to heal it and about power dynamics and about unconditional love as a biological container for emotional development, which even at the time of writing my first book, writing on the power of others, I had no concept of. I just had tapped into something that I knew that I couldn't unsee and I had to keep moving towards it. 
and I have continued and I still continue and I keep uncovering deeper layers of this. But at this point, I know what this is about now and I'm pretty clear and have created a body of work around it. So long story short, I used to be a professional animal trainer and through staying open and wanting to learn the truth more than, you know, feed my own success, Mm -hmm. I uncovered a shit ton of stuff that I might not have (laughs) wanted to see had I known what was coming. (laughs) Wow, I I love that because, you know, that's what I was going to ask you about. But I want to back up a little bit even before that. I... I can't remember these memories in my own head, but I was wondering if you remember the first horse that you ever met. Like, what drew you to horses? Because, you know, it could be anyone. It could be dogs, and some people are, you know, all about cats. What what about horses draws you in? You know, I mean, at the time, I couldn't have answered that. I was very, very young. Um, you know, I have pictures of me being two years old on the backs of horses I my earliest actual physical memory was of my dad placing me on the back of a horse and the horse like running out from under me and my dad having to catch me um but I wasn't scared like I still wanted on that animal Mm -hmm. and looking back on it now with the depth of understanding I have around trauma and the like total shit show from which I came from in terms of family dynamics and home um these were huge animals that were embodied Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that, they lived inside their bodies and in mm-hmm. a, there was a safety in that, that I was definitely drawn to, but more importantly, coming from a background in a home where I never felt safe or secure or stable, um, the power and security that was derived in dominating these animals is where my sense of security came from, knowing that I could control something that felt safe to be in relationship to was how I coped and survived. Um, and, you know, people that are challenged by my notion of horses today or my work today, mm-hmm. uh, but especially around horses, they're so attached to the relationship to horses without understanding the projection that that is of their lack of stability and lack of trust in themselves and that lack of a deeper connection to something that is so solid and so stable and so secure within themselves through overcoming and healing trauma and through developing emotionally that they don't see the disconnect that, you know, (laughs) this idea of wanting to create permanent captive dependency in another Mm. does not come from a place of emotional health in our species. Right. And it can't be contained forever. It can't be sustained forever. It's not sustainable. And that, thank you so much for saying that, because yeah. that is why it's a problem. And so many people cannot see the forest for the trees. Yeah. They're seeing the emotional regulation they get from the direct relationship without seeing the fact that, you know, one in two dogs dies of cancer. 80% of dogs have anxiety disorders. Our world is crumbling around us if any of us are paying attention. And <laughs> yeah. I really believe it is all linked to this foundational error of trying to regulate oneself externally through controlling external means rather than being a wholly emotionally mature being that is resourced from within and informed from within the same way a wild, a truly wild animal is because just because they live in the wild doesn't mean that they're not traumatized and dysregulated just like us. Right. Thank you so much for putting that into perspective. I, 
instantly in a flash as you were saying that about your childhood i just made so many connections in my brain about you know my family and how they have you know worked with horses um and controlled horses and all of these things so i'm sure some other people might relate to that so your relationship obviously has greatly changed over the years and i was gonna ask you you know what do you think i I mean this is always the question on my mind which maybe you'll have some insight to is why some people are so open to you know acknowledging maybe the harm that they've done or the ways that they're not emotionally healing themselves and why other people have such a hard time with it not that it's not challenging to you but you've obviously undergone this huge transformation in your relationship with other animals um so i'm just wondering yeah if you have any sort of answer to that and if not that's fine because that's a big question (laughs) no i definitely do um and what interestingly enough after writing on the power of others i would not have had the answer to that i Mm -hmm. would have i would have still been coming from an egoic place um it's trauma it's all trauma so when we are triggered emotionally by a concept somebody else's behavior whatever that is literally our nervous system responding to a gap in our own emotional development. So that's what a trigger is. When mm-hmm. we're really deeply confronted by something outside of us and we feel out of control of ourselves or really charged or really heightened and intense emotion, those are the areas that we ourselves experienced trauma. And the way I'm defining trauma is an interruption in emotional development that has gone unresolved. So Think about the full spectrum of emotionality and the different ways we label it and name it. If you were never taught how to integrate and process and be in relationship to something like anger, Mm -hmm. then anything that makes you angry, you're going to react to and withdraw from or attack or do any one of a number of things that have nothing to do with what anger is designed for from a biologically wild standpoint, which is to very subtly, um, most often inform us around our boundaries in a very discerning way rather than an externalized form of judgment. So when we're in Mm -hmm. judgment of another's behavior or another's ideas, that is an indication that we don't know how to meet our needs around that. And Mm -hmm. so then we project that onto others and, you know, make it about them or make it about their choices when really it's pointing to the work within ourselves that we have not resolved from our own parents' inability to be emotionally mature and model emotional maturity, which has been going on for as long as anyone can possibly conceive. Because if we were domesticating animals, which domestication I define as the the intentional interruption in emotional development in order to control another's behavior, Mm. I'm sure you can understand that each of us is domesticated by parents, society, schools, systems, in capitalism is based on domestication because if I can't control how you feel, how am I going to sell you my product or make sure that I can market it or make sure that it's successful? Because once we are fully emotionally mature and internally resourced that way and able to self-regulate, we are not easily controlled. We are not easily sold to. We are so connected to our intrinsic guidance that we just can't be moved towards what our body isn't saying yes to. And that makes us very difficult to manage in that way. 
So when I put those pieces together with animals, it created a model in front of me of that emotional integration that I was then able to observe and learn from and learn how to stay in my own body for the full spectrum of emotion, which allowed me to not get, you know, really wound up and defensive or whatever it may be. But I think everyone struggles with that in some way or another if they haven't done this deep internal emotional work. And so it just depends on what triggers you and why. So it's, yeah. I haven't found anyone yet that isn't, that isn't confronted by the work I currently do. Um, but when it was just about veganism or horses, you know, it was hit or miss who would get upset by it or not. Um, but what we're doing now holds everyone accountable. And yeah. most people want to blame something else. Other than, I mean, it's you know, easier, right? Personal choices. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Right. Well, can you take us into what you are doing now, whether it be at your sanctuary or like the bigger work that you're doing personally or, you know, um, with all of the work that you put out there in the world, too? For sure. So at the end of writing on the power of others, I had a concept. I had the what I had the experience. I had barely scratched the surface of what needed to be understood, though. And so I wanted to understand that deeper, which means I had to go further than horses. So I started applying what I had done with Shay, my stallion, and the rest of my herd to dogs. And that was devastating. <laughs> that revealed a paradigm of codependency merely masquerading as love for oh. most of our species. And that was a much more difficult path to lean into. And I did not have a lot of support in that path. And I lost friends, family, supporters, all the vegans that were following me. Um, you know, when we look at emotional exploitation mm -hmm. and the insidious effects of it and how much more destructive it is than the obvious, honest uh, abuse that so many people are engaged in, there is nowhere to hide from yourself. And so I turned that practice into a body of work called Sanctuary 13. It's 13 practically applied relational principles that hold one radically accountable and create a container for nothing but unconditional love. And when I use that word unconditional love, I don't mean a feeling or an emotion. I mean the same kind of unconditional love that a wild animal provides for its offspring in that there is no emotional use going on. There is no manipulation. There is a clear and understood intrinsic contract that as the guardian or the parent, my job is to make sure your basic needs are met and model emotional integration until you are fully functional yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Not to force you to love me, not to force you to take care of my unmet needs as a parent, not to have a child so that I can fulfill some decided upon destiny that I believe for myself, but because I'm actually here to be in service to your development until you no longer are dependent upon me for that. And so by providing that container for the animals in my care where I, there's no use involved anymore, which is really hard because you no longer directly benefit from them the way that you did when you were using them, mm -hmm. um, you're forced to create space to feel all of your feelings and learn how to integrate your own emotions and essentially learn how to reparent yourself in the ways that all of your trauma uh, left gaps in your development. 
So through these different ways, uh, and I'd love if you could give us a couple examples of how you work with maybe if some of them are the same, which I'm guessing they are with horses and dogs. Uh, it's all the same. It's all the same. Could you give us a few Mm -hmm. specific tools that you use and then what does that do for that companion of yours or for the dog or for the horse? Okay, so there's 13 principles, and it's a mutually inclusive body of work. And how I came up with the 13 principles is I sat down one day, and utilizing my experience with Shay that I had learned from Nevsarov Otokol, I sat down with, okay, well, why is this so hard to people? Where are the obstacles and the barriers that consistently come up through our conditioned and unconscious practices with these animals? And so some of the practical examples, and this, the principles never change, but they are highly nuanced depending on the circumstance, the species, the trauma load, the situation, the power dynamics involved. There's, I mean, everything varies, but the actual principle itself remains the same, regardless of what you're applying it to, whether that is a captive dependent, a human child, um, your spouse, your family mm. members, a, re- a relationship to uh, a situation, your job, anything. You can apply the principles to anything because essentially they are the container required for unconditional love to happen. And again, when I say unconditional love, I could you know swap that out with presence, truth, wisdom, God, grace, whatever you want. But there's this power that comes when we clear out all of the obstruction energetically from clear truth which the only absolute truth is is what is being experienced and felt not interpreted in the moment Mm. and so it clears the way for truth to be revealed and often especially in a domesticated society such as ours that space leads to an enormous amount of discomfort in our bodies because we haven't learned how to regulate our nervous systems or be present with what arises in that quiet So some of the practical examples are the elimination of baby talk, for instance, Mm. or anything that involves speaking to an animal in a way that is a offloading of excess energy or a projection of unhealed trauma, any kind of speaking down to them or speaking to them as if we understand who they are through our own lens rather than creating a consistent space of invitation to bear witness to their becoming and staying curious as to who they reveal themselves to be on a moment to moment basis, rather than interpreting or deciding for them who they are um, just because it's convenient to do so. Another aspect of that particular principle was, I know we all find it hugely entertaining to speak through animals and give them a voice that is sometimes funny or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So part of the practice of this work is eliminating that. Um, And none of this is about perfection. This is extremely difficult work to unpack and uh, reprogram ourselves to do something differently. So I encourage my students to practice for 10 minutes a day. That's how I got where I'm at. Mm. It's just through 10 minutes a day. And there is no perfection outside of accountability. Accountability is being able to say, yes, this is my behavior and this is the effect of that behavior and I can see that and I'm willing to take responsibility for that without shaming myself, without hating myself, without thinking my self-worth is attached to that. It's just being able to see things for what they are rather than believing in this you know, concept of right and wrong that was created to control behavior. So 
there's many, many other practical examples of this work. So one of the most important practically applied principles is always create a space of invitation. And all of these principles have many layers and nuances to them. So I, I try to teach the baseline. That's what's in the new book coming out is mm -hmm. the baseline application. And then, <laughs> I mean, I'm still practicing this 10 years later and finding new layers every day. Mm -hmm. But this always create a space of invitation is about recognizing the psychological and emotional impact of taking away someone's bodily autonomy in captivity. And we're all guilty of it because it is every single time we touch that animal and place our hands on them without having permission to do so and for doing and doing it for our own purposes or our own benefit. When you have a captive dependent in your care, it is your responsibility to model emotional maturity, not take advantage of their captivity in order to regulate your own. Mm -hmm. And when we reverse those roles, we destroy both sides ability to become emotionally mature. And that's where these overwhelming statistics come from with the animals in our care in terms of their rate of cancer and their rate of anxiety. That is an, a reflection and a mirror of the fact that most of us that have animals don't know how to self-regulate because the whole reason we get animals is because they make us feel better right? or they make something easier for us to do. So that learning how to pause before making physical contact and learning how to recognize the subtlest form of no and then honor it is a huge piece of this that radically changes everything. But this body of work covers everything you can possibly come up with as to personal responsibility, as to responsibility as their guardians, as to learning how to understand boundaries and how to be responsible for them rather mm -hmm. than to force them or rather than to place expectation on others to meet our boundaries. It's a radical exploration of personal responsibility, personal accountability and wholeness at the end of the day. Which is so, so much missing in our society, right? Whether you're vegan or not, yeah. whether you're working with animals every day or you just have one dog or, you know, this is just like, completely missing. So I'm so glad that we're talking about it because I'm learning things as we go too. Uh, because also I think there's this thing too, because we have a rabbit who we adopted from a shelter. And so mm -hmm. many, I feel like many people think, well, I adopted this animal and I did something good for them. And so now <laughs> they're my emotional support system, right? And now they totally. can do this for me. Like we have all these messed up ideas all the time. Well, now they owe me, mm -hmm. right? When we're the one who put them in this situation in the first place. So that's absolutely accurate. A dependent, a literal dependent owes you jack shit yeah. for their <laughs> basic needs. Yes. And, and having that expectation of a dependent is what keeps both the dependent and the person responsible for them emotionally immature. Right. Because when you expect somebody who depends on you, who has no to choice, care for them, they have no choice in the matter. You're the one that brought them into your care. This is the same for having children as well. Children owe you nothing yeah. for the things they need to become fully fledged adults. And that's why we have a, an entire species of, you know, broken children running around in adult bodies. Right. For sure. Which is, uh, you know, I feel like most of the population that I know. Um, Absolutely. Wow. Wow. That is, I feel like the work that you do and have put together for others to do is so powerful. So we're definitely going to uh, try to put some links and share with people how they can dive into that if they're Thank ready you. to. 
because uh, I want yeah. to actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the important piece. This is this work. Oh man, people ask me all the time, especially students. How do I explain this to other people? I'm like, you don't. Right. This is not work that you push on people. This is not. This is not about righteousness. This is not about saying, hey, you need to do this because I see what you're doing wrong. No, this is about personal accountability and personal responsibility to become from the inside out the change that this world needs, not conceptually, but emotionally, Mm -hmm. and to become integrated, to become a wild human animal again, Mm -hmm. the way we were designed with a deep, unshakable connection to all life so that we're intrinsically guided to make you know, choices that don't cause unnecessary harm. Because when you're deeply connected, there's no part of you that wants to be destructive in the world or in your relationships. And that's where we have to come from. Not this sense of righteousness of Mm. I know better than you because I don't know why. Um, (laughs) That's just not where it happens. Right. I also feel like when we're in that connection or in that flow too, we see others in that light too whether it be squirrels Mm -hmm. snakes you know whoever like it it really expands that view to others and then i think we really do respect bodily autonomy of others too so yeah that's huge yep that's really huge well we're definitely going to uh yeah share all of this at the end of the show (laughs) so that you can get people involved because that's just such important work that I feel like uh, I'm so thankful that you are creating space for that because I feel like well, it can be hard to find that intersectional view sometimes, right? That integrated view of like mind, body, spirit, while we're also looking at systems of oppression, while we're also looking, including non-human animals in this. So that's huge. Well, thank you for the opportunity because um, this path and this choice it definitely came with a cost. I mean, I had a lot of animals in my care when mm-hmm. I decided to stop riding horses and when I stopped just when I decided to stop training professionally and when I was willing to wear the vegan label and identify that way I had a little bit more support um, but once it turned into what it is now and evolved beyond labels and the perspective broadened so significantly in a way that's looking at everyone's role mm-hmm. most especially our own um, it's been really hard. We've, I've been out here for six years in the desert, living in this little shack, trying to take care of 33 animals, mostly on my own, um, and yeah. carrying the burden of responsibility around that without the support we need for it to be, you know, even close to the vision that it could be. It's not sustainable. I don't, I can't do this forever. This is, mm-hmm. it's crazy for one person to try to hold this and who, you know, and it's it's very difficult to see how many people are out, you know, focused on problems outside of themselves instead of doing the really important inner work that is the only thing I believe is going to change things in any sort of sustainable way. Right, because we, we are the only people we can change, which is what I have a really hard time with myself. Uh, sure, yeah. Right, I mean, even having a podcast, I love interviewing guests and I love having conversations because I take so much out of it and I love connecting with like all these people who I just think are the coolest right I'm specifically reaching out to them but at the same time I I hope that people hear things and you know it catches on like a wildfire but you know again that's me hoping that other people will join in uh instead of you know always looking at myself so I just yeah I resonate with that and I think that a lot of people listening will because that's just such hard work to do 
It is. And I struggle with it daily also. We're all dealing with that. It's real. That's, I mean, I am a practitioner of the work I teach and I tell my students all the time, like I'm right in the yuck of it with you. I've just been doing (laughs) it a little bit longer. (laughs) I've been doing it longer and I have all these fucking animals that, you know, I would never choose to have from this place. Um, And so You know, I love the animals in my care. Obviously, I sacrifice greatly to take care of them. But I'm telling you, the more you heal, the less interest you have in keeping captive dependence. This is about evolving beyond the need or desire to domesticate somebody. Um, Because it just doesn't exist as your connection deepens. And the truth is, it requires a village to take care of dependent needs like this. And I don't have a village. (laughs) And um, yeah, it is, it is something else because I, of course I want to take care of the animals that are here and that need us, but that is a never ending black hole. If you're focused on rescue through projection of your own trauma, that will never change things. Mm -hmm. But what will change things is a handful of humans becoming fully emotionally responsible for their own emotionality And I really believe that we could easily hit a tipping point that changed things intrinsically rather than, you know, looking at all the symptoms and trying to pour gasoline on a fire that's already out of control. (laughs) Right, because I I feel like the reason that other animals are in such horrible situations where they end up needing to be rescued from, right, is because we're not like emotionally capable of realizing what we're doing to them is is not right and they have no autonomy anymore Mm -hmm. so it just you know creates this never-ending cycle and uh i've worked on a sanctuary and have had multiple people taking care of about the same amount of animals and that was still a lot of work it still felt like a, a lot so i can't imagine having just one person doing that and shouldering that responsibility Um, But I wanted to hear also about the horses that are in your care, about where they usually come from, and how you work with them once they get to you. Because I'm sure so many people will have a really hard time imagining uh, a role with horses where you're not riding them, where they're just existing. (laughs) So I would love to hear about that. Oh, (laughs) man. Totally. So I do not take in new animals at all. That's not even part of my desire. So I have 20 equines in my care Mm -hmm. and four of the horses are horses that in my, they're all from my past. And seven of the horses are, they actually, I don't know what word we want to use, but just for ease, they belong to someone else. There are seven horses here that people in my closest circle reached out and they said, you know, I really want my horse to live like yours do. And I'm happy to pay to make that happen. And Mm. so there are seven horses that are boarded here. Um, And that helps a little offset the cost of the rest. But four of the horses are horses I actually brought into my life intentionally for the purpose of keeping. And once I shifted out of exploitation, they became, you know, family members. And so four of them are mine. Um, and I also have four minis in that same boat. So eight of the equines here are ones I'm totally happy to devote myself to for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Now, the other ones that are here, I'm also committed to, but they're the ones I'm trying to set up the sanctuary around and mm. create a model for people to come and learn an intensive immersion program. So 
how they came to me, um, most of the horses in my care, most of them arrived prior to riding on the power of others because I was in the business of horses. But even then mm-hmm. they came to me because people couldn't manage them for whatever reason, be it they couldn't, they were, they had behavior issues that other trainers couldn't handle. They had hoof problems that other practitioners couldn't handle. Um, and they sent them to me because they knew I could fix it. But my intention back then was to rehab re- and resell. Well, mm-hmm. when Shay changed everything, I had 13 in my care. Um, and so I just created a life around how do I care for these guys in this unconditional manner to practice this work because of what it is doing for me on an emotional level in terms of healing all of my trauma and having a relationship to myself that is not even comparable. And so I gave up a lot of things. I gave up a marriage. I gave up money. I gave up security. I gave up stability. I've lived in this little shack in the middle of nowhere for several years. I don't have, you know, a lot of ability to do the things I want to do or have the things I'd like to have. Um, I have enough of that to (laughs) make it worth it. Um, Mm. But what we actually do with them is practice caring for them in this unconditional manner that creates space for our emotions to come up and be worked through in relationship to them, but not using them or not, um, you know, using them to mitigate any of that on any level. They do not heal us. They do not, we don't, there's no training involved here. There's no systems of reward and punishment. There is unconditional care. In other words, we provide an environment where they're, all their basic needs are met and we've been in survival mode for years. So there's only so much that we have time and space and resources to actually do, but, but the potentiality is huge of what could be created if the mm-hmm. resources showed up that I got to tap into when I wrote that first book. Um, but at these, the last few years, it's just been, how do we feed everybody? Cause as you can imagine, 20 horses is extremely expensive to feed when you're no longer making the income mm-hmm. that used to support them. And so, um, you know, on a daily basis, it looks like making sure they all feel seen, make sure their basic needs are met, make sure that they are free to develop emotionally and are not interrupted on any level so that they then demonstrate um, that for us to learn from, which is incredibly powerful. I mean, the container that's created just from this herd's presence is really impactful to be around a large group of animals that are fully embodied, emotionally mature, not reactive, um, that don't need anything from anyone. They don't, Mm -hmm. they have such different behavior than domesticated animals. And just because we don't interfere with who they are while we still provide support for them on every level that's needed. And so a lot of people, oh my gosh, some of the arguments, and it's been a while because I've kind of been removed from this world for a while, but Mm -hmm. um, some of the arguments when this first came about was like, oh my God, if you don't ride horses, they're going to die of boredom and things like that. That is insane. These horses are so developed emotionally that they play, they have complex relationships and groups that they and preferences and things that they do, they create games with one another. There's this one game that about five of my geldings play where one of them will pick up a stick, bring it to that group or somebody in that group. And I don't know what the rules of the game are because they hardly ever let me play, but they have this (laughs) stick game that they totally created on their own and they romp and they jump and they run. And there is nothing 
boredom doesn't exist in emotionally mature individuals. If you are bored, what that means, whether you're a captive dependent animal or a human, is that you don't know how to feel your feelings and you need, you're looking for a distraction. Mm -hmm. There is so much going on intrinsically within us and in our bodies on a moment to moment basis that it is impossible to be bored if you're paying attention or feeling. Mm -hmm. And so these animals thrive emotionally. Now, you know, we get away with a lot that most settings can't in that we rarely have vet bills or a need for them, uh, but it does come up occasionally. But because of the emotional atmosphere that is provided here, even in our limited capacity and even in our own struggle with doing our own work, um, we don't have nearly as, as much upset and um, issues as a lot of places do. And I think that's worth researching. I think it's worth really paying attention to when the emotional environment is stable, mm -hmm. whether that comes internally or externally, because you can certainly emotionally regulate through privilege as well and through resources, but we don't have those. And so we're proving on a consistent basis that we are creating this harmonious environment full mm -hmm. of harmonious animals that lack anxiety, that are highly respectful, that listen and pay attention to each other and ask for what they need without, you know, being uh, intrusive or invasive about it. I've also got dogs here that um, showed up on the property from all sorts of traumatic situations that mm -hmm. other people would have destroyed um, if they hadn't ended up here. And I try not to take on anything, but every now and then you get one that like has nowhere else to go. Right. And so we have three incredibly large um, dogs that came here with major trauma and aggression that when these principles applied to them in the same way, it removed all of that and without training and without a lot of the things that we think that we need to do in order to, because most training and even the most positive forms of training and even the most evolved concepts of working with animals still involve external regulation. Oh, um, yeah. Because you cannot teach an animal to regulate if you are not willing to model regulation. Mm -hmm. So I can be as patient and playful and kind uh, to an animal as I want to be. But if I don't know how to sit with my own fear and pain and anger and all of those things, I'm not going to be able to rehab a highly seemingly aggressive 150 pound St. Bernard cross. Right. Um, so, you know, but when I can model boundary detention and safety within myself, I earn that animal's trust as a natural result of the fact that they're in captivity. We already have enormous leverage over their behavior as long as we are trustworthy and trust ourselves. And people don't recognize the power in that. I mean, you know, wolves don't have to train each other to cooperate. They follow the leader that is most trustworthy to follow based on how they feel. Right. And so uh, two questions came up out of that. My first one is how do you then set boundaries? I actually watched one of your videos where you talked about this. I'd love if you touch on a little bit. How do you set boundaries, A, with horses and then also with dogs, if you'd like to talk about that? Because coming sure. from the horse world, you just see so much brutality when people are trying to say mm -hmm. no to horses or they're trying to tell them not to do something, right? It's like the hitting uh, and the yelling. And so, yeah, how do you set boundaries? Well, to begin that, if you saw a video of me, it's way, way, way before this has developed at the capacity it has now. Um, that doesn't mean what I said in that video is necessarily not true anymore. It's just, whoa, do I have more understanding yeah. of it now. <laughs> yeah. So we don't set boundaries because mm. setting boundaries makes someone 
else responsible for your needs. Mm -hmm. We take responsibility for our boundaries. So what that looks like, it just depends on the situation. So let's give you an example of a dog, okay? A dog that's jumping on you. Mm-hmm. Most people's initial response is to make the dog wrong, to, you know, physically inflict something on the dog as a repercussion for jumping on them, get mad, get triggered, whatever the hell. I'm going to give you a secret tool right now that shouldn't be a secret that is <laughs> going to be one of the most powerful things you ever have access to in your entire life. Mm-hmm. When a dog is jumping on you, if you will bring the entirety of your attention into the center of your navel where none of your mind is on anything outside of your physical body inside yourself, that dog will remove itself from you within 10 to 30 seconds, as long as it's not trained to attack you and doing something like that. But I'm talking about like a friendly dog that just has no boundaries. Yeah. If you bring your attention completely off of that animal, it will remove itself from your body Hmm. every single time. And we don't, we are so convinced that we need to control things outside of us that we never think to control our attention. Mm -hmm. When you give attention to something that you don't want, including and especially an animal coming into your space, you are giving your power away and you're also inviting it in because the animal is just an energetic conduit without a lot of thinking space happening. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to be drawn to wherever, I mean, obviously the dog wants something, right? It's jumping on you. If you give it attention, negative or positive, it's going to continue to do so. But if you withdraw all of your energy just temporarily, it gives you the space for that dog to drop to the ground. And then you can look at them and say, thank you. And that's all it takes. Consistency with that and being responsible for where your attention is. And that's just one example. And obviously, it's a lot more complicated than this. So part of it is understanding why are you in the position to be violated in the first place? That's where people don't want to look at. Yeah. It's like. And it boils down to what we spoke to earlier around this expectation we place on dependence in our care. Mm-hmm. You're the one that put the horse in the arena. Why are right. you going in there and putting yourself in a position to get stepped on or bucked or kicked? or Exactly. Whatever? And so just accepting that as a, your decision is a huge part of it. It's like you don't have to hit the horse to make them back away from you what you have to do is quit using the horse so that the horse is so fucking confused about what it's supposed to Mm -hmm. do because here's that other it's a tie back to that space of invitation principle what do you think the animal learns if we touch them whenever we want to but then punish them when they try to touch us right 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 it it Literally, I, I remember I used to go to my grandparents' par- farm every summer for usually a week or two where they were training racehorses and they were breaking horses and all of this. And I remember I always felt um, so scared around the horses, not necessarily because they were scary to me, but now I realize because they were in this abusive environment, which it gives space for the kicking and the bucking and all sorts of those things. And I was so afraid of, you know, getting physically hurt. And my grandparents and my uncles would be like, oh, you're so sensitive. Just get over it. Like, you know, all of those (laughs) things. But at a young age, I was like, this is really messed up. And we're putting them in this position. And then they're expecting me to be in, you know, in that area with the horses who are so stressed out. So I love that you're actually looking at the root cause of that in the first place. Well, and what is so sad about what you just shared is that is a story I've heard from woman after woman after woman of, you know, I had a fear being around the horses and I was forced 
to ignore it or mm-hmm. not explore it and dominate the animal anyway. And here's the problem with that, especially when we're using horses in therapy, especially when we're using horses in therapy for victims of sexual abuse, mm-hmm. we're literally ignoring someone else's bodily autonomy to supposedly heal our own wounds around the same. Yeah. That does not work. Yeah. All that can do is create dependency and temporary feelings of relief. That is not real healing. Real healing comes from the ability to feel everything, integrate it, and create the agency within yourself to have a deep intrinsic relationship with your emotional capacity. Mm-hmm. And when you model that, boundaries are no longer an issue because mm-hmm. you're not doing anything that teaches the dependence in your care to violate yours because you're no longer violating theirs. Mm -hmm. The only reason you ever need to set boundaries with an animal in your care is because you're not respecting theirs Mm -hmm. because you're not looking for their no. You're not learning how to recognize the subtlest form of no, which is anything that isn't an obvious yes. And which is anything that is not being manipulated into a yes due to the power dynamic and you know, the sheer influence you have over their lives being their guardian. It's a complete radical paradigm shift of understanding our responsibility as guardians towards dependence in our care rather than taking advantage of their captivity in order to benefit from them. Yeah, and I I think a lot of humans have trouble even doing that with other humans, right? What does no mean? Absolutely. So for them to do that with non-humans, I feel like, you know, that's like a whole other other level that uh, our society is sadly not at yet. Um, well, it's actually easier to do it with non-human animals because you're not getting pushed up against another ego and right. another projection. And you have the power dynamic. If you are willing to relate and to and care for an animal in a truly unconditional way, you're actually going to create a very quick model for that emotional integration in yourself in a way that you can't with another human because mm. you've got all sorts of other things going on, especially stories in each of the individuals and projections and all the stuff. Whereas the animal integrates back into their body much faster than the rest of us because they lack the addiction to cycling thoughts that create repetitive emotions that aren't unnecessary to even be experiencing because we're creating them through our thought processes. Yes, which is which is a pro- I feel like you can see that physically playing out. Uh, Absolutely. When a human is disrupted versus another animal being disrupted. Totally. Wow. Well, okay, so many things I want to talk to you about. Uh, I specifically wanted to ask some questions that I know that you have been asked many times. And again, we're going to link to your work so people can get into it. Um, So you could go as deep as you want with each of them. But I wanted to talk about some fundamentals, which uh, I think are these questions are not widely understood, even by people who understand the overall concept of... um, like letting other beings be autonomous, right? Not using them sure. in so many ways. But I wanted to ask you specific questions about how riding horses harms them because not everyone is in the, the horse world and is familiar. Um, so I know that there's all different types of riding styles. And so there's so many arguments that people come up with. Well, you're not hurting them if you're doing it bareback without a saddle. Can you talk about why riding is harmful regardless of the saddle or gear that you used and yeah what really like what is the number one stressor stressor of horses who are in captivity 
use. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, think about it. If you're captive for the purpose of being used by someone, how healthy can you really be? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is not a new concept on any level. Mm-hmm. We understand Stockholm syndrome. We understand the power dynamic between someone who is in a position of power over someone that literally depends on that person in a position of power meeting their basic needs for survival. Mm-hmm. That's what we have to pay attention to here. Fuck the physical harm that happens in writing. Mm-hmm. Who cares? That's not the problem. Mm-hmm. By the time you're worried about that, you've missed the whole point. And I really want the people attacking writers mm-hmm. to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Because if you're attacking a rider for the physical harm they caused to horses, you got shit to do. That doesn't involve <laughs> pointing fingers at other people. Mm-hmm. Does it matter what physical harm comes from writing? No, it doesn't. The issue is why are we taking advantage of captive dependency in order to get our own perceived needs met instead of healing ourselves as a species to Mm -hmm. no longer need that. There is a line in writing on the power of others that I think every vegan missed in their reading of it, which is this is not about right and wrong. And if you still desire to ride horses, you probably should. Because if the desire is still there, the need hasn't been met. And we do not solve problems by cutting ourselves off from the thing that we think is meeting our needs without replacing it with something more healthy and more beneficial. Mm -hmm. So if you're not willing to do the work, does it really matter? I mean, these Mm -hmm. animals are captive dependents. If a rider is taking exceptional care of their horse and making sure that they are living a life, how is that any worse than a vegan who's putting their dog in fucking clothes and watching soap operas all day? <laughs> yeah. Because I've, I've yeah. met many of those. <laughs> yeah. And they're leaders in this movement. And it's all insanity and it's all rooted in the same problem. And I was guilty of all of it at some point, mm-hmm. too. And it wasn't until I decided to look at myself and stop blaming other people for my fear that this work evolved into what it is now. And I started teaching people how to empower themselves into those changes rather than shame themselves, because shaming is not a sustainable form of change. For sure. It, it definitely isn't. Um, I'm just remembering in my like changed relationship with horses over the years. I think the thing that first changed how I viewed them and my relationship to them was realizing the physical harm I was damaged, like causing Mm -hmm. because I was so young and I still feel like I didn't have the space to process like, okay, what's the root of this problem? Um, So I think that is where I first started to become aware of like, wow, I am like actually physically causing harm. And that's the first thing that made me take a step back. And then obviously that evolves over the years. Um, But that is such a good point. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like there is a lot of hypocrisy in the vegan movement, especially when it comes to, right? This is like, we're telling everyone that like, all animals, you know, deserve to live free and be happy, but not looking at like, what about our dogs at home? Like you're saying that we're dressing or up in baby mean? clothes. <laughs> yeah. What does yeah. that, what does that mean to begin with? Do we want to keep perpetuating this problem of these animals well, needing us in the first place? You bring up a valid point and it leads to a couple more valid points that I want to touch on in that we can't get too hung up on what our reason for change was because mine started there too. I was Mm -hmm. still in this paradigm of right and wrong and trying to do the right thing and trying to do the better thing. But that's because no one like me was out speaking to something 
that was more important and giving me an option. It was the only thing available to me at the time was, do I do the right thing or the wrong thing? I'm telling you, you can skip that step and, you know, accelerate your healing tremendously by realizing that right and wrong are concepts made up and their stories in order to control your behavior and not teach you how to become emotionally mature. Does it physically harm the horse to ride them after 10 minutes? Yes. We need to understand the intrinsic motivations behind what we do and why we do it and get to the core root of that rather than just trying to reach for, cover up, fix the things that make us uncomfortable. I'm not interested in telling people too much about the harm caused to horses mm-hmm. by riding them. I'm much more interested in you know guiding people back to their own pain and learning how to have a relationship to it. Because if you can do that, you naturally don't want to climb on the back of a horse. End of the story. There's that no totally point makes in sense. climbing on the back of a horse. You, there's no <laughs> desire to. The only thing in nature that climbs on a horse is a cougar that's about to eat him. <laughs> there's no reason for us to be up there. And when we're deeply connected to ourselves, we naturally realize that through experience. This is not conceptual. This is education that only happens through the experience of practicing it. And it is not coming from a place of right and wrong. If you want to keep you know, emotionally enmeshing with your captive dependents and putting clothes on them and baby talking them and coddling them out of their experiences and climbing on their backs, you know, whatever you got to do to to cope with the world, we're all struggling in our various ways. (laughs) But if you want to overcome the reason you do all of that, there are solutions out there. The other thing you touched on that I think is so important is that what is freedom? Mm -hmm. Because so often People will be like, well, they still have fences. And how do you, this is not saying let animals do whatever they want to do and run physically free all over the place and cause havoc and disruption. You would not believe how many people have come at me saying that we should return the animals to the wild. That's insane. We created them. We have to take responsibility for them. A lot of people have also come at me and say, well, if you're not using animals, nobody would do that. Horses would just suffer and die. Well, bullshit. I'm setting the example for how that's not true. I've got 20 in my care and I've sacrificed a great deal to take care of them. And I do benefit from caring for them this way. Mm -hmm. Not in ways that are really fun and enjoyable anymore. (laughs) But, you know, I, I have become a version of myself that I am incredibly at peace with and really powerful in. And you cannot shake my sense of inner authority. Mm-hmm. I'm not able to be manipulated anymore. I'm not able to be controlled. I have healthy relationships. I have healthy boundaries. I still have a hell of a lot of work to do, but I know how to move towards it now. And that, to be able to walk through this life without fear controlling you is something I would never you know, give up to go back and be able to climb on a horse or have a six-figure career or having or new cars in the garage or whatever it may be. Right. You know, We'll have the ability to manifest anything that we want in our lives, but we're not coming from a clear place within ourselves, then what's the value of that? And who is it costing ultimately? So this Mm -hmm. is really not about some externalized version of freedom. It's about emotional freedom. Do Mm -hmm. you have the freedom to feel whatever you're feeling and be loved in the face of that, regardless of how uncomfortable it makes somebody else? Mm -hmm. That is what we provide for these animals. And that is what we get to learn for ourselves is can I accept every part of myself unconditionally in a way that relieves me of so many of these things that I need to cope with life and the the attachments that I have to using anyone, be that a romantic partner or my dog, in order to feel safe and okay in the world. 
Can I show up for myself? Can I love myself unconditionally? Can I repair the damage that my domesticated parents and society did because of their domesticated parents and society? And am I willing to take responsibility for that instead of taking advantage of somebody's captive dependency to avoid it for the rest of my life? Yeah, I mean, that is that is the thing that I, I feel like is really challenging, especially in the USA, right? where we live here, where everyone's hooked on the word freedom, but I don't think most people actually know what it means or have stopped to consider it. We, we hear it all of the time, yeah. but you know, what, what does that mean? Like you were saying, what does that mean? Um, which obviously... That's because America is very much dependent on you not being free. Exactly! <laughs> That's just a America huge... was built by slaves, not free men. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was built by people who were enslaved and non-humans who were Animals. enslaved. Yeah. yeah. I feel like we just have such a twisted view sometimes, well, most of the time, here on what that, that actually is. And so... Yeah, that comes out in our relationships with others so easily, which which makes sense. Totally. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to discuss in this interview? I just want to be respectful of your time. And if there's not, <laughs> where can people find your work? Where can they get on board with your teachings? What do you want them to know? There is. The, the one thing I want people to know is that I am 100% aware of how deeply confronting this work is. Mm -hmm. I am a provocateur. Like my part of my job here is to provoke and get people stirred up to understand that there are issues. There are important issues within each of us. But it's also my job to be there to hold your hand if you're mm -hmm. willing to hold your own. And so, you know, I get it. I know how hard it is. I know how confronting it is. I do the work too. I have faced myself repeatedly. I have, you know, burned my reality down to the ground over and over again in pursuit of truth and in being in my integrity with this. So I know how bad it hurts. I know how scary it is. I know how hard it is to hear things that trigger your shame. And I want to like be here to give you permission to not make yourself wrong for mm -hmm. anything at all. There's no value in that that leads to actual healing or sustainable change. So at the very least, be gentle and compassionate towards yourself and others and understand that everyone is behaving in a way that makes perfect sense to them, given their history, their trauma, their background, etc. And it doesn't matter what you stop eating or what you stop riding if you're still being a jerk to people. Mm -hmm. And that's not where the change comes from. The change comes from having an unconditional allowing for reality to be what it is and developing your capacity and agency to make the changes that are actually within your control to change, which start with what are you saying? What are you doing? What are you focusing on? And what are you believing about the things that were conditioned in you that may or may not even be true to who you are today? Mm -hmm. So understand that while I'm super passionate about this and I really believe in this and I really enjoy seeing the reactions um, on some level of what it exposes. Exposure is beautiful, okay? Mm -hmm. When we get triggered, when we get really upset about something, that is the doorway to healing. Without that happening, there is nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. So understand that if you're confronted or pissed off or scared about what I'm saying, there is something to look at there. And if you're not, who cares? Don't, you know, maybe it doesn't resonate. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm not here to convince anybody of anything. I'm not here to make anybody wrong. This is my truth. It works for me. It works for my students. And I'm here to help people if they are 
seeking something like this. And that's it. So understand that if you mm-hmm. come to me to learn this, I will meet you where you're willing to meet yourself. I am not a guru. I'm not your parent. I'm not your teacher. I will be your friend and guide in this. But it, if you are not willing to lean into your own pain and your own trauma, there's not much I can do for you because I'm not interested in taking your money to make you feel better. So yeah. on that note, what I've created as a result of that is a nonprofit called Wild Wisdom Incorporated. Our mission is to address the trauma of domestication. And Mm. so every Sunday, I have a Zoom class where I teach various elements of the 13 principles. We just take one principle at a time each week. Um, I talk about it for as long as it organically happens. I show up however I'm showing up that day. You get to see me raw, unfiltered, as I usually am. I'm authentic. I'll give myself that. Um, and I don't care if I'm not perfect. My, my perfection is accountability. I know when my personality conditioning is present and I know when I'm clearly channeling deep wisdom, mm-hmm. you'll learn to recognize the difference between me too, if you pay attention long enough <laughs> and in yourself. Mm-hmm. So every Sunday we have this call and I take questions around the practical application of the work and just provide some support and some community for people that want to move in this direction. That is $3 a month. And if you don't want to pay $3, just contact me and have the balls to ask for it for free. Cause I will, (laughs) I am willing to show up and teach this to anyone that is willing to show up and learn it. Mm -hmm. And so we created a nonprofit for that. Um, the nonprofit, all of the money right now. And (laughs) until we make a whole lot more money, all the money goes towards the 13 horses that are in sanctuary, for my students to learn around in this work. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we've got going on right now. Um, we don't have a sustainable facility yet. We don't have a quote unquote sanctuary that people can come to. We're off the grid, just doing our best to take care of these horses. And I've got two students on the property that help in exchange for learning some of this, but I can't even provide a lot of support to them because of the situation we're in. Mm-hmm. So we're hoping through the nonprofit, we are tax exempt. It's all fairly new within the last few months. My new book is coming out January 10th through Inner Traditions Publishing. Um, that book has the actual how to apply this in it. And so mm. it's basically the manual for Sanctuary 13. Mm. Between the creation of the nonprofit and the book, we are really hoping to find the financial support we need to create a facility where, you know, we have this environment where people can drop in and learn this. But I teach to an international uh, body of students, and I have been teaching this work for five years now. Um, it's available if anybody wants to learn. Through, awesome. Right now, it's Patreon, that, and we don't have a website yet, but we will in the coming months. And what if people want to find writing on the power of others? If they want writing on the power of others, I mean, you can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, I don't know if it's going to be continually produced because quite honestly, the work has evolved far beyond writing on the power of others. Yeah, Um, that's what it sounds like. I mean, if I'm being honest, you know, writing on the power of others is where, what I, how I discovered the what of this Mm -hmm. and the experience of it. But I definitely wrote that book through functional codependency, which I couldn't have even named at the time. Mm -hmm. I had an incredibly loving, supportive partner. I had, you know, so many forms of unearned privilege in my life that were externally regulating me to a degree that I could write that book. Mm -hmm. And when I was stripped of all of those things, once it evolved, oh boy, did I learn how much I 
hadn't integrated from horses. It yeah. wasn't until I turned this towards dogs that I actually had to do the deep, deep work of mm. healing. Um, so yes, if you want to understand where I come from and where this comes from, definitely buy writing on the power of others. You can get it anywhere books are sold. But the new book is the one that I would recommend reading. And that is uh, The Wisdom of Wildness, Healing the Trauma of Domestication. Mm. And it hits shelves on the 10th of January and will also be available anywhere books are sold. Well, I'm definitely going to get that. Definitely going to get that. And I'm sure and you can it pre-order on. it now through Amazon, Intertraditions, Barnes and Noble. I think you anywhere, really. It's ready for pre-order. They're taking orders now where it's I think it's just gone to print. Okay. Is it best um, if we buy it through one of them or can we pre-order it through you? Like directly? You could pre-order it through me. I would literally have to keep track of that by pen and paper, which is fine, <laughs> which means you'll get an autographed copy. Um, and you'll get it sooner than the rest of the world because I think I get my copies first. But honestly, it's not the sales of books that um, I think are, are going to create the support we need it's people doing the work and wanting Mm -hmm. to get behind making sure that it's available so we're really looking for substantial donors to back a facility um that we can create that um makes sure that this is sustainable because the the honest truth is it's not sustainable for me to carry all this on my own for ever so people who are listening if you have money to share or you know people who do because i feel like i have a lot of friends who, you know, are in the same boat, but maybe they know someone. Send this episode to totally. them. Spread the word. Uh, you know, just keep putting it out there, which obviously is what you're doing, but hopefully people listening to this podcast can support you on your journey too, which I hope that they do. Make the world a better place by leaving things better than I found it. You know, whether it be people or the planet or, you know, all kinds of things. Isn't there a quote that says, feel fear and do it anyways? Yeah. 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 So I think for us in significance, we have to do it ourselves. A lot of people are doing things in their life they're not completely happy with. Mm -hmm. And they're doing it just because, you know, it's a norm and they feel like they feel pressured by society. Just, you know, stuck in this rut. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ruts can be comfortable for people. And they can be very comfortable. Comfort is not how you, how you grow as a person. <laughs>